your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you're not familiar with your Bible uh, as far as how to get around really well, Colossians is most of the way to the back. It's uh, in the middle of your New Testament. You're about four-fifths, probably five-sixths of the way to the back. If you see the Thessalonian letters, you went a little too far. So Colossians chapter 2 I am going to resist my urge to read the entire book, although it is very well worth it. Just a little background. Paul's writing to the Colossian church, and he's dealing with some false teaching, and he's in prison as he writes it, and he's trying to encourage them, and he's drawing their attention to the supremacy, the centrality of who Jesus Christ is. There is no creation. There is no universe apart from Jesus Christ. A little side note for us personally. Before we even get into the sermon time, we need to know that it is absolutely, utterly impossible for you and I as individual human beings to fulfill our purpose for existing apart from a relationship with Christ. We were created for the purpose of a relationship with God. In Genesis 1, he created us in his image, a unique relationship, a unique setting for us that's different than any other being in creation. We're even different than the angels. We are uniquely made for him. And if we are trying to do anything else outside of glorifying him, those are all just spinning our tires. We're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. That's not where we find our fulfillment. So in the book of Colossians, Paul is making this point and uh, in talking about the, the fullness that we have in Christ. Um, our passage really starts with verse 9, but I'm going to back up to verse 6. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, pause, there's a comma there, so I'm going to take advantage of it. There's a little pause here. Because he is writing to the church. Every one of these letters that Paul writes to a city, to the Colossians and the Ephesians and the Galatians, the Philippians, pick one. They are written to a group of people who have already professed faith in Christ. They have already received Christ as Lord. They've declared publicly that Christ is calling the shots and no matter what persecution they may face, and they face real persecution, no matter what persecution they may face, they're all in with Jesus. They identify with Him and with His body, the church. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Let me back up and read that again, because we want to get this to sink in. In Him... You are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off, was removed, when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
so much here. So we got a whole other sermon just on this verse alone. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Before we go any farther, let's pray. Father, this is your word given to us that you might reveal in it to us your will, your heart, your nature, your character. That you might reveal to us the path to real, lasting, meaningful, eternal life. That you might glorify your Son, that your Son might glorify you. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your church, your bride, for allowing us to be a part of it. Father, we, we trust the words of Jesus that he will return and establish his direct rule in the day of the kingdom. And we embrace the reality that for now, his glory is revealed in us his bride, his body, his church. Father, as I speak now, on your behalf, strip away all that is fleshly. Father, speak beyond my stammering tongue. Strip away mere human opinion. Make it clear. Make it clear. Father, I don't want anybody here to walk away with anything that doesn't come from you. So guide us. Guide the preaching. Guide the hearing. Lord, by your Spirit, protect us from the evil one. Strip away anything that might discourage, distract, or deceive us. That we might receive only what you have. That you would illuminate your word by your spirit. For your glory, Lord, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we get into this topic, we are in Luke. We're in Luke 19 specifically. We're stopping here before we move into the city of Jerusalem, before Jesus is welcomed by the crowds. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. We've got a, a couple of pauses here, and we'll get to that. But Jesus has been talking about the kingdom, and he specifically, in Matthew 19, tells the parable of the minas as he speaks of a man of noble birth who is, uh, who is distant, is gone, he's in a, a far country to receive the crown that he deserves. It is his authority by right, and he is being crowned, he is placed on the throne, and he will return to settle accounts. In the meantime, he's left his servants with work to do. He's given them gifts with which to do it, he's entrusted them with uh, an amount of money, referred to in Luke as a mina. And they're expected to do his work, his way, for his benefit. Two of those who report in the parable do that, one better than the other. But the focus of the master when he returns is not the quality of their work, it's the faithfulness of their work. It's not their ability, it's their availability. It's not how many points they score, it's which team they're playing for. The third plays for himself. And the one who is in it for himself, who does not do the master's work, is reckoned with the unbelievers, to borrow from Matthew's account. And each of these who are unbelievers, who reject the authority of the king, are, in the end, 
executed. It's a harsh ending to a very powerful story. And he goes directly from this parable in Luke 19 into his, what the NIV heading would call the triumphal entry. As Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding a donkey, most of us are familiar with it. We can picture the kids on Palm Sunday waving their little palm branches, right? That's all going on. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He is now hailed as king. But the parable that he tells right before that is specifically to say the kingdom isn't what you think. It's here, and yet it's not here yet. It's not coming in the way you expect it to be coming. It's not going to be something you look for and say, oh, that's the Messiah, that's the Messiah. When I return, when the king comes back, everybody's going to know it. There will be no hiding. Like lightning flashing in the sky, everybody sees it. Everybody knows. In the meantime, he's already told them, I have to suffer and be rejected by this generation. So as we look at the idea of the kingdom, we see that it's a now and a not yet sort of thing. Jesus has told the Pharisees in Luke 17, just two chapters before, that this idea of the kingdom is bigger than they think. So now we need to look at what does that mean for us? How does the church fit into that? Last week we developed that idea that said that, excuse me, until Christ returns, his glory is revealed in his church. We are here as ambassadors, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. That we now, having encountered Christ, having been reconciled to Christ, have been given the ministry of reconciliation to then represent him in the world. That's our job. If you belong to Christ and you're here on this planet, you are to represent the kingdom until the king comes to establish his throne. We are the envoys sent ahead to say, listen, the kingdom is near. You can repent and find mercy, or you can do it your way. And it doesn't work out well. There is no in-between. There are no options. There is no second path. There's no sincere effort that's going to get you there. You're either in or you're not. You are reconciled to God by Christ or you are not. That's our job. Therefore, it sort of precludes any kind of a soft message. That's uh, why I, I really I can't apologize if the gospel is offensive. I don't want to be offensive personally, but if we don't tell the truth and the king is coming, if the Bible is true and judgment comes when he returns and we don't tell people the truth, that there's only one way to be saved, how hateful would we be? There is nothing else. That's our job. So then, that brings us to today. Today we want to take a look at this idea of baptism, partly because it's a very uh, prominent theme in church history that causes a lot of confusion, partly because we see it in Scripture, mainly because it's in Scripture, and partly because we're going to have a baptism next Sunday and we want to make sure we understand what we're doing. So before I go any farther, let's hit this core reality. This is what we're going to be seeing as we walk through some Scriptures, then I'll talk some more, and we'll kind of take a look at, at how this plays out. Core reality is this. All who belong to the body of Christ proclaim it through baptism. All who belong to the body of Christ proclaim it through baptism. We see this over and over in Scripture. Uh, the, uh, I, believe, I believe the NIV uses the term baptism or a form of it 95 times in the New Testament. And the, the preponderance of that is in the book of Acts. Actually, the, most of them are not in the book of Acts, but in the gospel in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John relating to John the Baptist. So they're not really even talking about Christian baptism within the church. Those who are, those scripture references that are referring to Christian baptism in the church center heavily in the book of Acts. That's where we see most of the church references to baptism. 
with some other scattered verses that are specific about it. But more often than not, we see baptism described through John's baptism, through what we see in the book of Acts, and very little that describes for us details about how it takes place, which has led to, historically, a lot of confusion. Hopefully, by the time we get done today, some of that confusion will be allayed, assuaged for you. I was looking for a way to say assuaged. I had to come up with that. For us to be able to to take a look at this, it probably isn't going to settle every question that you have. I don't think I'm capable of that. I'm not even entirely sure, ride with me here, that God wants that. I think if God really wanted that, that specific clarity, it would have been very simple for God, who inspired every word of Scripture, to say, okay, here, ABC, is exactly what I mean when we're talking about baptism here. Anything other than this is anathema. But this is specifically what I mean. When God leaves things somewhat unclear, there's a reason. He knows what he's doing. This is an area that has some very clear commands. First command is do it. And then more murkiness, a little more what we might call second tier or third tier authority when we look at the doctrines. So hopefully we'll catch up on that. Let me, let me uh, throw this out there to you, just sort of a quick definition uh, of baptism for our purposes today. Baptism is an act of obedience which signifies the passing from death to life by God's grace through faith in Christ and which identifies the disciple with Christ as a member of his body, the church. Let me read that again. Baptism is an act of obedience, which signifies the passing from death to life by God's grace through faith in Christ, and which identifies the disciple with Christ as a member of his body, the church. All right. So we see a lot of different types of baptism. Let me just give you a quick background to it. Baptism uh, is an, an often misunderstood practice among Christians. We see a lot of different things, and we as humans have a tendency to make religion our focus. In other words, the the outward act and the binding back of behavior tends to be our human focus. But as we walk through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that is virtually never the case, including the Old Testament. Now, wait a minute, Zeiger. God gives you five books of the the Pentateuch and lays out the law. He gives the Torah so that there are very specific commands given to the Jews. How can you say this isn't about religion? He gives them all these sacrifices and ceremonies. If it were about religion, the prophets would not continually say to them, I hate your worship. Stop it. Stop giving me sacrifices. You're doing all the right things, but you're missing the point. The call of the prophets is to get right. It's always to get right. When Jesus summarizes and clarifies all of the Old Testament law, he comes down to the inside. Yes, it plays out on the outside, but it has to be on the inside. None of the sacrifices in Leviticus applied unless they were offered in faith. You could do the right thing, but if you didn't do the right thing for the the right reason, then the, the sacrifice would not be applied to you. Same is true today. I can go to church every Sunday. I can speak out a particular covenant. I can make a profession of faith. I can pray a a sinner's prayer or walk through four spiritual laws. And none of that does a doggone thing if I haven't encountered Christ That's the point. That's always been the point. If you walk through the Gospels, you see that over and over again. So let's take a look here. We're going to start with Matthew 3. If you're in Colossians still, back up to the left a little bit. Matthew's the first book of your New Testament. If you get too far to the left past that, you see a bunch of names you won't recognize. 
as I mentioned, most of the references to baptism in here relate to John's baptism. They speak of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, John baptizing, baptized by John, the baptism of John. We see all this stuff about John's baptism. So let's read about John's baptism. Starting with verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3, we read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Incidentally, you'll see if you read these Gospels, that's the same message Jesus is preaching. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Before we even go on, let's take a look at what John's here to do. What does it say? He's here in the, in the same way that Isaiah speaks of it, to prepare the way of the Lord. This isn't about John's baptism. John's baptism isn't about John's baptism. It's preparing hearts, preparing the nation of Israel specifically <coughs> to receive her Messiah. He's calling them to repentance because the kingdom is now at hand. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah, he'll see in just a few moments, is actually here. God is offering mercy Turn from your way to his way. So he baptized to signify that. Verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Yum. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Why was John so weird? John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. We're, we read about it in the New Testament, but he's here at the beginning of the gospel, as Mark says it. Jesus has not done his work yet. The gospel, the kingdom, isn't here in its fullness. We're about to see Jesus be announced, but that hasn't happened yet. So John is still preaching as an Old Testament prophet. And to summarize it in a nutshell, God had Old Testament prophets do weird stuff. It was normal for them to be outside of society. It was normal for them to wear such clothes, to eat such a diet. John was easily identified by his lifestyle and his message. And the people recognized him as a prophet of God. When they recognized him as a prophet of God, they came, they received the message. When the message connected with their hearts, we read in verse 6 that they confessed their sins. Now, John's baptism is for repentance. It's not just confessing. It's confessing and turning. What did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repentance is a new mind. Repentance is doing a 180. I was going this direction, and I am now going that direction. It's like if I am trying to get to New Buffalo, and I somehow I'm not really paying attention to what I'm doing, and I get on I-94 headed east like I'm going to Detroit. I'm not going to get to New Buffalo from here. So I get to about Bridgman, and I realize, oh, what am I doing? I'm trying to get to New Buffalo. I was almost there, and then I took the wrong path. What do I have to do? Is, did, I, did I fix it by saying, oh, I'm on the wrong path? Somebody tell me, is that, the, is that enough? No, I got to get off, turn around, and go back. I have to change my direction. That is repentance. That's exactly what it is. So John is calling them to this. They confess their sins, and they repent, right? And they're baptized, signifying that repentance. The baptism, the confessing, neither one are the repentance, but they're part of it. The baptism symbolizes this confession, this turning. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice there's more. He's not saying, Hey, come be baptized. No, Baptism isn't for you because you haven't changed. If you want to be baptized, it's got to mean something. When you step into this water and you ask me to baptize you, which they didn't, by the way. This is hypothetical on my part. 
When you come into this, you need to come for the purpose of repentance. And if you're repenting, it's going to show in your actions. Verse 9, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, that's important. This is not about your identity as an Israelite. That's not enough. It's not enough to, to have that badge that says, I'm part of God's people. Fast forward to today. It's not enough for you to be, to be identified as part of the church. You need to actually be part of the church. Jesus is about, is about to say this. Jesus later on says it. Paul says it. Paul says it very clearly in Romans. This is not about Abraham's physical descendants. It's about his spiritual descendants. If you really belong to Abraham, it'll show up in your actions. Verse 9, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Check out his words here. I baptize you with water for repentance. Okay, That for becomes very important. That for, the, the, the Greek preposition ice, E-I-S, causes a lot of confusion in our understanding of baptism because it can mean for in a variety of senses. Just as we can say for here in English, and it can mean a variety of, of different things, right? I can give you something that is for you in the sense it belongs to you. I can, give, I can do something for a reason in that it is the cause of it. I can do something for a reason in that it is the reflection of it. For can have a variety of meanings. It is the same way in the Greek. So often it's confusing to us when we hover on a word without seeing the greater context. This is why our hermeneutical principles, our, in, our ideas of interpreting the Scripture must be sound and ethical. We have to look at the whole context, what the writer is saying, how this all fits together, and how it fits with the rest of Scripture. Every time we look at Scripture. So here he says, excuse me, <clears throat> Lost my place. Give me a second. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. It doesn't cause the repentance. It represents the, re the repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork for the harvest, that is, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I don't think I can read that passage without thinking of the parable I mentioned earlier in Luke 19. Matthew continues, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. What's John's water baptism for? What's he say it's for? I didn't hear that. Can you tell me again because I'm a little, I'm getting older, I'm having a hard time hearing. What was John's baptism for? Repentance. Now Jesus is coming to be baptized. Now, if I know anything about Jesus, it's that he's sinless, right? That's, that's a tenet of everything that we look at, that the foundation is the sinless Christ. Why would a sinless Christ come be baptized by John if he's baptizing for repentance? John seems to have the same question. Jesus came from, from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. Permit it for now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. <laughs> I've read a number of different takes on this and there's so much to that statement, but the thing that really caught me is a statement by John MacArthur that points out that Jesus, in fulfilling all righteousness, that's not just his sinful life, his sinless life. That's kind of an important distinction to make. If we were editing this, I'd cut that out and just say sinless life. His sinless life. That's not enough to fulfill all righteousness. If it were, notice this, 
If that were enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. But his sinless life ends with his sacrifice for us, his death in our place. Theologians call that substitutionary atonement. He atones for us as our substitute. That's where righteousness is fulfilled, in the completion of the task when Jesus says that it's finished. That is the fulfillment of all righteousness. So if that's what he's saying here, then the baptism somehow has to connect to the death of Christ at the cross. We can't separate those. Let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see that account elsewhere in Mark and Luke, slightly differently in John. This baptism that John has is different. This isn't Christian baptism, but it's a precursor. It's important for us to recognize that baptism didn't start with the Christian church. It predates it by a long time. In fact, a lot of pagan religions, tribal religions, world religions, a lot of pagan religions had some sort of similar water rites. Part of the process involves some sort of a ritual cleansing, perhaps a ritual immersion like this. Even the Druids, supposedly, I'm not a scholar on, on Druids, but as I was reading, I was astonished to find that even the Druids, it's kind of cold in Northern Europe, seemed to have this immersion uh, ceremony that they had. The Greeks also had it. When you would change from, from your way of thinking previously to a new teacher, I used to not care, and now I've decided I'm going to follow Plato, so I would be baptized to signify that, to symbolize my change, my cleansing, the washing away of my old thinking to a new thinking. The Jews specifically had added to their tradition for proselytes, those who would convert from their old way to Judaism, they would have a three-step process. They'd have to be circumcised according to the scriptures. And then they would have to be baptized to symbolize that they were dead to their old way of life and raised up to follow God. They were dying to the old, and there's a new life coming. And then thirdly, they'd have to make sacrifices in keeping with the law. The, this immersion that was a, a part of the proselyte baptism was for those who were Gentiles to become Jews. John's is different John's is kind of a freaky situation because he's doing it for Jews who are willing to admit, I'm not living right. I might be of Abraham's line, but I'm not of Abraham's heart. And just like the Gentile who recognizes that only God gives life and the only way for me to know this God is to come through the nation of Israel, and the only way for me to do that is to die to myself and turn to Him, turning my back on everything that was my past, even my family. I am no longer a part of that life. I'm part of a new life. Then John comes and says, hey, my brothers and sisters in Israel, you need to repent. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's just not for us because we're not Gentile dogs. We're not like those people. We're not like those pagans out there. Look at their sins. John's calling them to repentance. And those who have their hearts changed confess their sins and they're baptized to symbolize that they're turning away from their own way of doing things to God's way. Gentiles, they're, they're outsiders. But for the Jew, you're setting aside your religion. You're setting aside your own goodness to recognize, I can't have a relationship other than repentance and turning to God. So they do, except for the religious leaders. They've got a little too much at stake. 
Their hearts remain hard. They won't acknowledge God's purpose for their lives, so they won't be baptized by John. That comes up later on in the book of, in, in, uh, the book of Luke. So as we, see, as we see this baptism that John has, we haven't gotten yet all of this yap, and I've spent most of the time talking about this baptism. We haven't even gotten to Christian baptism yet. So we're going to have to follow up on this. But Jesus comes, and he identifies with it, and he says, this is right to fulfill all righteousness. There's a connection to his death, but what we see is he is identified publicly. He doesn't need to be saved from anything. He's already righteous. He doesn't need to turn away from his sin. He doesn't have any. But he's turning away from anything having to do with the flesh, with his own self-direction. He's rejecting that and identifying with living for God. This flows right into what we will see with Christian baptism. Since we're in Matthew, let's take a look at the place, the only place that Jesus commands this in Matthew 28. We see baptism commanded in other places. But here Jesus himself specifically commands it. When you get to Matthew 28, the story of Christ's earthly ministry has come to a close. He's died. He's risen from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. And at the end of Matthew's account, which ends on a much higher note than Mark's account, by the way, we read this, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Does that remind you anything of anything that we've been talking about? A king, perhaps? A kingdom? All authority. I am the ruler. I am the sovereign. The kingdom belongs to Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, in light of that authority, go and make disciples of all nations. The command here is making disciples. Going is just going. You're on, as you're going about doing your business, go make disciples of all nations. Notice what he says about making disciples. If you're going to do that, this is how you are to do it. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian baptism baptized in the Trinitarian name. One name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not the names, but in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Baptism is an act of obedience which signifies the passing from death to life by God's grace through faith in Christ, which identifies the disciple with Christ as a member of his body, the church. Let's jump ahead. Skip over Matthew, Mark. Uh, we're at the end of Matthew. Skip over Mark, Luke, and John. And let's go straight to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, in the very first chapter, we see Jesus speaking. This is verse 4, verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, this is post-resurrection, he's appeared to, the, to uh, his followers. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak of. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember John saying, I baptize you with water, but one will come who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, that's The baptism of fire refers to his suffering. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, we see here that all who are in Christ are immersed in the Holy Spirit. Baptism means immersion. That's the definition of it. It's the picture that we're looking for as we follow the New Testament pattern. There's no record anywhere in, in uh, the Scripture of a baptism other than that. It's always immersion, and it's for the identification here. We see Jesus saying baptism by the Holy Spirit is about to happen, and it happens in chapter 2. 
after it happens in the upper room uh, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down and, and appears as if there are tongues of fire, uh, flames hovering above their heads, things have changed. And then Peter preaches. Let's look at chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Peter, 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 still working on my mouth here trying to figure out how to use it. Peter is about to give a sermon that changes everything. You remember Peter, right? He's the guy that was afraid of the little girl at the crucifixion time and denied Jesus three times. One time because a little girl accused him of it, accused him of being a follower. No, no, no. He even swore to emphasize his point. He didn't want to be identified. Now, with the Holy Spirit filling, consuming, baptizing him, Peter speaks up when the mocking crowd is around there. And he says this, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, including all the Gentiles, obviously, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. They're speaking in foreign languages that they didn't know. And only, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He continues, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. They're still in Jerusalem. The crucifixion had only happened a few weeks before this. It's all fresh in their minds. They know the reality of Christ. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Speaking of the resurrection here. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. In other words, it wasn't David talking about David. It was David talking about the Messiah who would come from David. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is the one who comes. He is the one who will rule. He is the one who is in charge of all things. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Isn't that the question? This is the question that we need to ask at the heart of baptism. What shall we do? These Jews, these Gentiles, all who are gathered here, hear this message, and they're cut to the heart by the truth of who Jesus is, by their guilt before a holy God. And their response is, just like Isaiah, as he encounters God, woe to me, for I am ruined. What shall we do? Peter 
guys, tell us, how can we be saved? Peter responds in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all whom the Lord will call. For your children, for all who are far off, for all who the Lord will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 believers, 3,000 baptisms. Baptism is an act of obedience which signifies the passing from death to life by God's grace through faith in Christ, and which identifies the disciple with Christ as a member of his body, the church. Let's fill in some blanks. There are at least these things that we see about baptism. Baptism is a declaration. Baptism is a declaration. As we see in John's baptism, as we see here, it is saying, I get it, and I want Jesus. And I trust that Jesus Christ is my only hope. Therefore, I declare that I belong to him, that I identify with his death and resurrection. Turn quickly, just past Acts, to the book of Romans. When you get to Romans, find chapter 6. Very next book, so it shouldn't take you long. <clears throat> Romans 6, starting with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. Elsewhere, he says that we're dead in sin. Here, after turning to Christ, confessing and repenting, we have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. Baptism is a declaration. We declare that we have been united with Christ in His death. Therefore, we trust that we are united with Him in his resurrection. Next, we see that baptism is a celebration. It's a declaration. It's also a celebration. Baptism is a celebration. Every one of these accounts, and I'll let you, I want to turn there, you can see a number of these accounts in the verses that are listed for you in your program. There's an excitement. One of the things that I noticed in preparation that I never noticed before, we don't see any baptism accounts in the New Testament out of fear. None. We don't see anybody who's baptized because, oh my gosh, if I don't hurry up and get baptized, I'm going to hell right now. We see repentance out of fear, but we don't see baptism out of fear. We see baptism out of an overflowing, overwhelming joy. I have been saved by Christ. I have been shown mercy that I do not deserve, and I know that I can't. Where's the water, man? Let me go show everybody who I belong to. 
I declare that I'm united with Christ, and I want to celebrate that. There's a sense of urgency in it. That's a term we use a lot when we're talking about baptism. And, and perhaps that is a little bit belied by our, our particular habit of baptizing once or a few times during the year. There are a number of practical reasons for that, but the bottom line is when we are in love with Christ, we want to run to the altar. When, when you have asked that girl to marry you, a long engagement is not something you want. That's something your, your in-laws want so you can plan a wedding and all that. It's something your bride wants so she can work out her, her fancy plans and look beautiful. But when you have asked that girl to marry you and you are like, I'm all in, man. Let's get it done. Give me the ring. Let's get to the, get the preacher. We're going to the chapel. Why do you think in olden times, and we'd see this, you watch uh, Andy Griffith, you see this sometimes. Good theology in Andy Griffith. When people are going to get married, they run to the justice of the peace in the middle of the night. We got to go. We got we to gotta do this. There's an urgency about it. That same thing happens here. Man, I'm so in love with Jesus. I can't keep it quiet. I can't bottle it up inside. Bring me to the water. Let me declare this. Let me show everybody that I belong to him. Baptism is a declaration and a celebration. Third, we see that baptism is an identification. It's an identification. Whether we're talking about the proselyte in Israel converting to the ways of God, John's baptism identifying identifying them with, again, Israel, with the ways of God, but specifically with repentance, or the Christian church, this is where a lot of confusion has come in, there is an identification not only with what Jesus has done for us, yes, that, but with his body, the church. We belong to one another. We are part of one another. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is our memory verse for today. We've listed it in your program in the English Standard Version. I'll be reading it to you from the NIV. I prefer the rendering of the older edition of the NIV, as many of you know already. But that's what my preaching Bible is, so we're going to read it from here. In, the, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is dealing with a church that's got a lot of jealousy and dysfunction. Why do they get to do that? And I don't get to do that. I want to be up front. I want to be the person getting the glory. And he's saying, look, forget about it. God's given you gifts that you are to use. You're made, you're wired the way God made you for God's purpose so you can use it as part of the church. But all of us are part of one body. And if you happen to be the foot, it doesn't do you any good to want to be the lips. And if you're the lips, it doesn't do you any good to wish that you were the heart. Because everybody's got to have a liver, and nobody wants to talk about your liver, but you got to have it. We're all one body. It's in that context that he says this, verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form the one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. He's indicating here, as we see elsewhere, that there is an identification with the body. Throughout church history, that has been the good and bad of baptism. Luther and Calvin and a number of other reformers, while they had so much right, brought an awful lot of their old teaching along with them when it came to baptism. And in medieval times, there, the, there was no separation of church and state. The belief was that God established a state church. Therefore, geographically and politically, you would be baptized specifically to designate that you were part of the Christian state that you were in. So that was simple up until the Reformation. But then you've got Catholic areas and Lutheran areas and 
and Spinglian areas, and the Anabaptists over here, nobody liked them, and, and then you've got the Calvinists, they all ran away to Geneva so we can ho go hide out in Switzerland. But with all of these things, there was confusion over how this played out because there was no separation between church and state. So it was as much political as it was spiritual. Now, we can forgive their, igno their ignorance to a certain point in that we're at a different place. So we're able to see the scriptures with a bigger light. Scriptures have not changed. The early church did not see it that way, but during that time they did. And those habits carried forward so that we would baptize to identify with the church, yes, very much like we see here, but we would also be baptized to identify with a particular brand of Christianity and a particular allegiance to the crown of our area, of our region. That's where we get a lot of the confusion and the difficulty. That's also why one of the reasons that infants would be baptized. That had come along centuries before. In the Roman church, as it was developing, there began to be confusion between whether or not this baptism was a reflection or whether the baptism itself was the regeneration. And the, the Roman church, which was, that was the only church, other than out east, you had the Eastern Orthodox Church, but the, the Western Catholic Church, small c, which became a big c, baptized believing that that sacrament brought the grace. Therefore, it canceled original sin in the infant, and they only had to deal with their own sin going forward, with their choices. That's not scriptural, that's not the picture that we see here, but that's how it, it, it began, and then it carried forward. And then the, the reformers carried it over with different meanings, some with the same, but mostly with different meanings, until we see a return among some, to what we see here in the New Testament. In fact, up until uh, around that time, the Catholic Church immersed all the babies. They didn't sprinkle them. They actually immersed them for a long time. People frown upon that now. CPS shows up and all that stuff. Sorry, a little too tongue-in-cheek. I apologize. Baptism is a declaration. It's a celebration. It's an identification with Christ and His church Baptism is a submission. Baptism is a submission. Just the very act of baptism is a surrender to someone else to dunk you under the water. How many of you were baptized and scared to death? Go ahead. Raise your hand. Yeah, some of you were scared to death, right? Of course you were. Somebody else is holding your fate in their hands. By itself, it's an act of faith. It's also an act of submission to God's will. I get baptized not just because I choose to do it, not because it's the cool thing that everybody does. Incidentally, that's one of the reasons that we don't immediately baptize right now. It's a different setting. They were enduring persecution. We are not. So it's very easy for us to get baptized because everybody else is doing it. If everybody else is doing it, but it means losing your family or your home or your employment, it's not really encouraging. So we don't really have that problem in the New Testament that we have today. But as we, as we have this submission to Christ's will, when he says, make disciples, baptizing them, so they're identified with the body of Christ, they're identified with the church, they're identified with the work. But we are also submitting in this act to God's will. It's an act of obedience. Lastly, we see that baptism is an illustration Baptism is an illustration, as we read from Paul, as we see in John, there is an imagery that goes along with it. There's a picture, not just of the washing away, we see those terms, but the washing away isn't really the point of Christian baptism. That is the point of pagan baptism. It is the point of Jewish baptism. It's not really the point of Christian baptism. It's a part of the symbolism. The symbolism is the burial and resurrection of Christ. The washing away, the changing, happens in our repentance. The grace of God given to us on the cross as His blood flows down for my sin. 
And when I receive him and his blood flows through my veins at that point, then there is a change. There's a cleansing. He paid everything. And now I get to reap the benefit of that. Why is it important? Baptism doesn't have any any inherent power to gain forgiveness or win points with God. But it is an act of obedience for those who trust their lives to Jesus. It's following in His footsteps since He chose to be baptized. And it's following His command as He said that this is how His disciples are identified. It's a sign of kingdom citizenship. But it's a picture When Paul said we are buried with him in baptism and we're raised with him as we come up out of the water, when we rise with him to a newness of life, we are able to please him. It's not that we couldn't please him in the moments between our faith and and our dunking, but it's part of it. It's It's a part of the process. And as we carry this forth, very much like our remembrance celebration, the or communion, we're giving a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ until He returns. There's a proclamation in this. That's why at Real Life we love doing it at Lake Michigan, at Warren Dunes, where it's crowded, and you see all these people looking at those weird people over there. What are they doing? Why are they dunking that person in the water? That's why we retell in a much shorter version than this, we, we retell the story of baptism every time. And we sing glorious proclamation in our song that I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. So that in this illustration, others can see Christ and give glory to God. And we pray that in that process, perhaps they can be drawn to that grace. Perhaps they can find life in Him. As we wrap this up, I just want us to remember that we are here to represent Christ. His glory is revealed in His church until He returns. And all who belong to the body of Christ proclaim it through baptism. It's commanded. So if you're in Christ, if you've received that that grace, if you've turned from your way to His way, say, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I've tried it my way, I give up. I thought I was a pretty good person until I saw God, and I'm not, and I deserve death. I thank you for dying for me, and I receive with gratitude that grace. If that's you, then you need to commemorate that by taking communion by celebrating the bread and the, and the cup, the body and the blood of Christ, it's commanded by Him. He says, do this. Do it in remembrance of Him. But if you haven't been baptized, then you really shouldn't do that. We start by identifying with Christ and identifying with His church. It's the initiation rite, if you will, to the church. It doesn't save us. It doesn't gain us favor with God, but it declares and celebrates and illustrates to this world around us that we have submitted to Christ and identify with His work and with His family so that we can live a life that pleases God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, move in us now to hear Your Word, to receive Your Word, We've heard it with our ears, Lord. Let us hear it with our hearts. Father, we want to to bring glory to your name. We want to make you smile. So I pray right now, Father, that those who have heard this message today, if they have not turned to Jesus Christ in repentance, that you would move them to do it by your Spirit. I I can't do that. I can't change anybody's heart. I can't change anybody's mind. Maybe I can present a winsome argument. Maybe not. But your sovereign grace, your Holy Spirit claims us. I pray.
pray that now for all who have not received Christ. But Father, for those of us who have, I pray that you would move in us, that you would stir us to be identified with the body and the blood of Christ. That we would be moved to identify with his body to become members of the, of the great church. And because we are members of that great universal church, Lord, move us to become members of this local church where we can express it. Father, if there's a believer here, if there's a believer hearing this who has not obeyed you in baptism, then move them to do that now that you might be glorified and celebrated. We pray this in Jesus' name.